So am I popping in and out a little bit? No? Just a little? Yeah? Well, we're going to go with it anyhow. So we have been, over these last number of weeks, we have been watching the meteoric rise of David as an army officer in the nation of Israel. He's been rising through the ranks. He's been showing his mettle. He's been proving his valor. He has been doing incredible things. And he is growing in favor in the eyes of the Israelites. He, of course, was the man after God's own heart and was the king that the people of Israel needed. And at the same time, we've been watching the precipitous fall of King Saul. He was the man that, that Israel wanted to be king, right? He was the one who was going to give them legitimacy and respect among the nations of the world. He was going to be the man that, that really put them on the map, so to speak. And he has been falling rapidly. Remember, in 1 Samuel 15, God said that he was taking the kingdom from Saul because Saul had decided not to listen to God. When God told him to do something, he said, nah, I think I'm going to do it my way. I'll kind of do partially what you want me to do, but I'm going to do the rest of it my way. And he got nailed for it. God said, because of your rebellion, because of your sin, I'm taking you out. And when Samuel comes to Saul to tell him this, he says something very interesting. He says in, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And instead, God chooses David. And ever since God told Saul that he had chosen David over Saul, Saul has been trying to take David out. And he's kind of done that on the sly at first, right? Creating these circumstances where maybe he gets killed in some sort of mysterious way. And then he tries to do it personally, but it's only in front of a few people. But over time, as David escapes again and again and again and again, Saul gets more brazen. He gets more brash. His, 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 uh, he's mentally becoming more unstable and his uh, behavior is becoming more and more erratic. And he is falling deeper and deeper and deeper into sin because of his idolatry. And that's very important to remember. It is because of his idolatry that's, that Saul is falling deeper and deeper into sin. His meaning in life was to hold on to the throne, to be king. And he was going to do whatever it took to hold on to that throne and make sure that, that his, his line remained on the throne because that's where his identity was. Now, there's a place in Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul writes about people who reject the Word of God and who reject God's lordship and re reject God's kingship and they decide to live according to their own rules and their, 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 be their own lords and masters. Paul says about people who do that, he says that they are without God and without hope in the world. That's a very chilling statement. If you, if you allow it to sink in for a minute, to be without God, Paul says, is to be without hope in the world. And the story that we're reading this morning weird story as it is, is a picture, actually, of what happens when you reject God. That you become not just without God, but you become without hope 
in the world. Now, here's a picture of what that looks like. It is hot, okay? So I'm going to try to be brief. I want to throw so you I want to show you three things that can happen to a person when they are without God and without hope in the world. First, you become afraid. Then you become desperate. And finally, you become lost. You become afraid. You become desperate. You become lost. Those three things. Here we go. First of all, you become afraid. You notice in, in verses uh, 4 through 6, in these words, uh, it says that the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. Gilboa. Uh, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. So Saul is not just anxious, not just a little worried. No, he's freaked right out. He is terrified. He is almost paralyzed with fear. That's how scared he is. Now, what in the world has got Saul so afraid? I mean, if you read through the book of 1 Samuel, you know that Saul is always fighting the Philistines, going to fight him this time, going to fight him that. Then they have a skirmish here. They have a skirmish there. Now, what in the world? Why is he so terrified this time? Well, let me keep reading. It says, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Now, here's what's going on. Saul is afraid of death. He's afraid that he is going to die. He's had, he's had battles before and skirmishes before, and he's been in tight spots before, but never like this. And he thinks, like, look, I'm going to be a goner. I'm going to be a dead man. Now, there's three things that point to that. The first is, is that the Philistine army is set up in such a way, I don't have a map to show you, but the Philistine army is set up in such a way, in numbers, against the Israelite army, in a way that, that gives them an extreme advantage were they to go to war against one another. You know how sometimes if you, if you have the high ground, being having the high ground is better, or sometimes if you're on the plain, you know, you, have, you can see the enemy coming. It's one of these situations where the Philistines are in a way better shape than the Israelites. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, is that Saul has heard that David and those 600 men that were with him, remember Keith preached last week about David being with these 600 men? Well, by this time, David has gone to uh, the Philistines, and he is now has been enlisted into the Philistine army against the Israelites. And you might think to yourself, wow, 600 men. You know, if you're going to have 20,000 men, what's another 600? But this is David! This is David, who does not lose, hasn't lost yet, has overcome every obstacle ever placed in his way. And these 600 men, by the way, these are not just regular army people. These are the elite soldiers. These are the guys who said, I am going with the new king. He's probably been their general, whatever you want to call it, their leader for a long time, and they've seen what he's done. And these guys are the elite soldiers in the Israelite army. Think of like Marine Special Forces. Right? They're worth one. One of them is worth ten of any other kind of army uh, of uh, soldier. So that's the second thing. But the third thing is the most important thing, and it's this. It says in verse 3 that Samuel's dead. And it says in verse 6 that God has been silent. Now, Saul has not been listening to God for a long time already. Okay? But it says that there's no prophet because Saul, Samuel is dead. And then it says, you know, that there's no Urim. 
Now, the Urim and the Thummim were things that, um, they were devices used by the priests to inquire of God's will in the Old Testament. But Saul killed the priests for helping David. And so now he has no access to the Urim and the Thummim. And thirdly, it says that God hasn't spoken to him by dreams. And, and that was a way that, that God revealed his will, what he wanted to his kings. He would come to them in dreams. But remember, God has taken the kingship away from Saul, so God's not talking to him anymore. And so he's been rejected by God, and he is absolutely terrified. He, he faces this impossible enemy, and he doesn't have the word of God any longer. He doesn't have the comfort. He doesn't have the encouragement. He doesn't have the guidance that the Word of God provides. If you are a Christian, you understand what I'm talking about because you've had experiences in your life where you're terrified of the future, where the unknown is right before you, or you're suffering terribly, and you open the Bible and you read Scripture, and in some strange, mysterious way, it moves you. Sometimes, maybe briefly, sometimes for a longer period of time, but you experience that the, the power of the Word of God in your life. If you're not a Christian, this seems like weird to you. It's, you might as well be reading Cosmo magazine, or you might as well be going for help uh, from, you know, um, Men's Health magazine. But if you're a Christian, you understand that, that knowing that God is present with us, especially in moments of our deepest fears especially in moments of our deepest fears, is incredibly powerful. So what was Saul so afraid of? Well, he was afraid of dying, but really what he was afraid of was he was afraid of what happens to us after we die. And bar none, philosophers down through the ages have said that the fear of death and the fear of the unknown after death is the number one fear that human beings live with. I know many of you would say, no way, public speaking is. Making me come up here and do a, a testimony. <laughs> That's my number one fear. <laughs> But actually, what, what, what philosophers and psychologists and all these, you know, smarty, smarty pants people say is, is that behind these other fears that we live with is actually the fear, the number one fear. It's the fear of death and the fear of the unknown that comes after death, not knowing what's going to be there. And, you know, you can see how this is, this is true simply by asking people, how do you want to die? Christian, non-Christian, all people. Basically, you ask them, how do you want to die? And the number one answer is quickly. Hopefully in my sleep, have a heart attack or something, gone. You know, it's the Woody Allen way of dying. I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. There's a Greek Orthodox scholar, brilliant guy by the name of John Romanides, and he says this about our fear of death. He says, being under the way of death and not having real and correct faith in God, man is anxious over everything and is ruled by selfish bodily and psychological motives. What he means by that is, is when you don't have a certainty about your morality, if you can't deal with the fact of your morality and what's going to happen when you're gone, then you feel a tremendous amount of pressure. You become a neurotic person who feels a tremendous amount of pressure to, to make this life work, to make, to make this existence matter in some meaningful way because you think that this is all you got. 
Now, you might say, oh, I don't live that way. Well, if you're a Christian, hopefully you're not living that way because you've come to terms with your morality, your mortality. You understand that one day you will be gone, but that's okay because you know that after you're gone from this place, you will be entering eternal life. You will be spending eternity in heavenly bliss with your creator, and so you can live with that. Others of you maybe don't feel that way because you're distracting yourself from it. I love button. Sometimes I do because I think it's like five seconds I have to wait otherwise. Now, this next part of the story is weird. It may be the weirdest story in the whole Bible. And I'm going to try to be really, really concise. And, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. You're going to have tons of questions about how all this stuff happened and how it worked. But I don't want you to miss the main point. What Saul basically does is, is he says, fine, if I can't get a word from heaven, then I'll try hell. He turns himself over to the dark side. He goes against his rules. Remember verse 3? It said that he had kicked out the spiritists and the mediums out of the land. Well, that was because in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God had said in his law, you must not practice this stuff. This is pagan. This is awful. This is terrible. It is dangerous. Get rid of it. The Israelites didn't listen. Saul did one really good thing during his kingship, and he got rid of the mediums and the spiritists, but now he's going against his own rules, and he's decided to go get one anyway. This is occultism, okay? This is, this is spiritism. It is, it is evil. It is pagan. It is prohibited. Now, understand something. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible do we read that this is not true or not real. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that, that the occult is a figment of our imagination. The truth is, is that we are surrounded by spiritual forces and powers that do exist and that do have influence in our world, and you cannot see them with your physical eyes. You and I are modernists. This is another area where I'd love to go really, really deep. I'll just point you to a guy named Charles Taylor who wrote a book in which he said that in ages past, human beings lived what was called a porous self. So we, we, we understood that everything around us had a spiritual nature to it. And we chalk that up as modern people, as people not having scientific minds, and they didn't understand how things work, so they had to have a spiritual uh, uh, reason behind everything that happened. But that's not actually the case. How people understood reality was that, that there was a spiritual realm beyond what we could see with ourselves. And we had a porous self, meaning that we were, we were engaged in that reality all the time. Sometimes it went funky, because we believed in elves and spirit, like sprites and stuff like that, but very often it was quite orthodox because there was an understanding that there was a demonic realm that, that, that was a, at work in this world trying to overcome the work of God. And today, we modern people, we have what, what, what Charles Taylor called buffered cells. We don't, we don't believe that there is a, a spiritual realm out there. There's a concrete wall, if one exists, between it and the physical world in which we live. It has no influence. And, and, and what we're discovering in this passage is, is that the Bible says, no, it's there and it's real. I could tell you a story of myself as a, as a young boy I was not yet 14 years, I was probably 12 or 13 years, my dad can tell you, he's here, and I got a little bit fascinated by the demonic. And I watched a movie about demon possession, and I got screwed up royally. 
I was maybe 12 years old. I was in a big school with a lot of kids. And one teacher who taught kids three, four, five years older than me called my parents and said, what's wrong with your son? Something's happened to him. And I was taken to a counselor, a Christian counselor. And I was not possessed by a demon or oppressed by a demon, but I was prayed over and I was counseled. And I learned that this was a world that exists and that I better not mess with it. So if you're into tarot cards, if you like to have your little uh, Ouija board at your par birthday party, if you every, every now and then want to read the horoscope for fun, understand something. The spirit world is real, and it is not innocent, it is not harmless, and it is everywhere in the Bible utterly prohibited. And if you think, well, it's only a small thing, go back to, oh, no, I can't, and then I'm... I'm going to wait and tell you that because then it'll really have a good punch. Okay. <laughs> Saul knew all this, and he went anyway. He disguises himself, the text says. And so what he's doing is, is he's divesting himself of all the kingly characteristics that he had. Every, every shred of his kingship has been now removed from himself, and he goes out at night. And we all know that in the stories, going out at night, only ever means something bad. That's why, kids, your mom and dad always say nothing good happens after 10 p.m. Out at night he goes, and he goes to a witch. And this witch is in a place called Endor, which means that Saul actually had to cross into Philistine territory. They, they had the territory. This was still in Israel, but they had this territory. He had to cross enemy lines to go get it. Shows how desperate he was. And the irony is, is that he gets to this witch, and this witch is more righteous than Saul is. She says, she thinks this is a sting, right? She thinks this is a setup. She's like, hey, you know what King Saul said. He kicked out all the mediums. You know we're not supposed to do this. How do I know I can trust you? Come on. And he, she's protesting. And by the way, she gives him God's will. He says, God's not talking to me. And what does she do? She repeats his own words from way back when, when he was listening to God and doing what God said, and she says it to him again. God is speaking to him, but he ignores it completely. And he says, no, 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 no. It's okay. It says he swears by the Lord, okay? He says, verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. It's like, it's like a minister who's addicted to pornography preaching on the dangers of sexual immorality. This is the last time that Saul mentions the name of the Lord, and he takes the Lord's name in vain. He says, I want to see Samuel. Now, now it gets really weird, okay? She does her thing. I don't know what she does. I don't know if she mumbles or gum. She, she mumbles something or whatever. But something happens because she freaks out. She's now terrified. She's now scared out of her, her mind. And she's like, ah, you're Saul. You have to be Saul. This has never happened to me before. And he says, well, what do you see? And she says, it says ghostly figure in the New Testament there. The literal word there, believe it or not, 
is the word for God, Elohim. I see a God coming out of the earth. Now, she's a pagan, okay? So she believes in, in, in the existence of all these gods. She was probably enslaved to some demonic powers because she was practicing as, an, as a spiritist, as a, as a medium. And she says, I see a God coming out from, from the earth. Now, I know, what do you want? You want to know, what did she really see, right? Did she really see Samuel? I mean, was it a demon pretending to be Samuel? Uh, some scholars have said that, that she was really good at mind, like manipulation. I don't know if you remember this show. It's from a number of years ago. It's called The Mentalist. Jess and I used to love watching this show. This guy was like so good at the power of suggestion and stuff. He could get you to believe things and see things that weren't really there because he was very manipulative. And sometimes these, these people are shysters and that's the kind of thing that they do. And so some scholars say, yeah, he, he just worked on her power, on the power of suggestion, making her think, or making Saul think that there was someone there. But we're not sure. I'll just tell you that my opinion is, is that God saw Samuel. Or not God saw Samuel. Uh, the woman saw, saw Samuel. Now you might say, yeah, but, but God's not going to allow something that he prohibits. Well, God's not the one who called up Samuel. He didn't do anything wrong. And God is all-powerful, and sometimes he uses, uh, uh, uses our sinful acts as a way of accomplishing his good purposes and his good plan. And because this woman freaked out the way she did, and, and it indicates that nothing like this has ever happened to be her before, maybe she's called up other spirits, maybe she is a, a charlatan and she's faking it, but this time she sees the real deal, and she's absolutely terrified. So I think she saw Samuel. I mean, God sent Moses and Elijah to go speak with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So God can do this. Sorry. I'm like a Baptist preacher <laughs> this morning. But look at verse 15 through 19, okay? The Philistines are fighting against me. God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me? Now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to the one, one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Saul says, I I'm calling you to tell me what to do. It's a little bit of like when someone comes to a pastor. Mark's had this, I've had this. They come to a pastor, and, and they know what they're doing is sinful, but they're trying to find a way to justify it. And so they come to the pastor and they, they try to explain themselves. Well, you know, under these circumstances, you know, there's mitigating issues. and You don't really quite realize, like, like the pressure I'm under or whatever. The excuses are about as long as my arm. And I've, I've done this too, okay? So I throw myself under the bus as well. But that's precisely what Saul is trying to do by calling up Samuel. But Samuel does not validate his sin. And this leads to the last point. When you're without God and without hope, 
you're lost. All you have left, really, is judgment. Samuel tells him, look, God has turned from you, man. I am a prophet of God, and if he's left you, I got nothing to say to you. I told you the scoop way back when in 1 Samuel 15. I told you what God had said because of what you had done. You've heard it already, and you did nothing about it, Saul. You didn't repent. You didn't fall on your knees. You didn't change your way. You kept on the same absolute road, and now you are done. All that's left for you is death. Now listen. Let's get deadly serious for a minute. There may be people here, and there are certainly people in churches every day who hear the same thing over and over and over again from their preacher. But you don't listen. You come to church each Sunday, hear the gospel over and over that without God you are without hope in the world. You hear me plead with you to beg you to lay down your sin, to lay down your self-centeredness, to lay down that thing inside you that says, I am going to live my way and I beg you with tears and I cajole you and I, I try to joke you into it. I try to explain all the objections to the Christian faith and show you how they're not as strong as they think. I tell you stories of how God is at work in the lives of his people from scripture and I beg you and beg you and beg you and beg you and plead with you and plead with you and plead with you and maybe if you're watching online and this isn't your church you go to another church and that preacher has been begging you to realize that, that you are without hope in the world and that all that lies at the end of a life that rejects Jesus Christ is judgment and you're not listening Every Sunday, Jesus stands with those nail-pierced hands open wide saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened. I will give you rest. I will give you life now. I will give you life forever. All you have to do is lay your deadly doing down, down at my feet. All your good works are nothing. All your best efforts are meaningless. All I want from you is that you would see that I died in your place for you. That's how much I love you and accept that and receive it and you won't listen. You shut your ears. You say this is boring and I'd rather listen to something else. Or you're going to say, Man, that guy's a little fundamentalistic. I don't like that. You're going to go somewhere else next week. Jesus says in Revelation 2, verse 29, He who has ears, let him hear to what the Spirit is saying. Look, here's, this, here's the warning from this story. You may shut your ears to the Word of God so much that you may discover that you will never listen again. Do you notice that this story ends with a, a meal? Weird, eh? Here's this woman being righteous again. She's feeding Saul on the way out the door. 
She serves him, she serves a meal fit for a king to a man who doesn't, who is not worthy to be king. He had his last supper, Saul had his last supper, and he went out into the night. And you know, many centuries later, there was another last supper, and the devil was there. And the Gospels tell us that the devil entered Judas Iscariot, and he ate, and he went out into the night just all. Guys, this moment right now, perhaps for someone here, this moment right now may be, it may be the best chance you ever have to know where you are going to spend eternity and to conquer that ubiquitous fear of death that plagues the human heart. I know of a man, a Christian man who had a son the son was in the military and he died in action in Afghanistan and so his body was brought back. They held a funeral service for him and this man stood up before his, his son's soldier buddies, his compatriots, and he said, my son was not a Christian and my son is now dead. But I tell you, if he could speak to you today, he might say to you, this is your chance. This is your chance. The chance to escape the judgment that we all deserve and to escape the fear that we all carry. How? How? Well, the Bible tells us that, that someone else went out into the night, you know. It was a midday midnight. While Jesus was hanging on the cross so many centuries ago, the, the sky went pitch black. It was darkness. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And out of that darkness, there was a cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he heard nothing. God had turned his back on his son, and he heard nothing. Not because he disobeyed. Not because he had done anything wrong. Not because he had chosen the path that Saul chose. Absolutely not. In fact, he said, my food, the very thing that gives me life, is to do the will of my father. This son perfectly obeyed his father every single step of the way. But he was experiencing separation from his father for his people. Bearing their sin. Taking it on them. See, because Jesus went out into that night... He can give you light and hope so that we never face the night that Saul faced or Judas faced, but rather we go out into the light. He who has ears to hear, I plead with you, listen to what the Spirit is saying to you this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus said that he stands at the door and he knocks. And if anyone would open that door, he would come in and sit and eat with them. 
I pray right now for anyone in this room who hears Jesus knocking, that they would open the door. It may feel like a scary thing to do, to give up your autonomy and hand it over to this mysterious figure, Jesus. But you have shown that you, that he, are utterly trustworthy because you first gave up your son and your son first gave up his entire self for us. And for all the Christians in this room, Father, may we stand in awe of that and may we go out into our day-to-day lives with a spring in our step because we do not fear death, we do not fear guilt, we do not fear judgment. All we have is life here and in the next life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay. Just uh, dry off a second here. I already got a question, so I guess I can't say no questions. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. When Samuel said to Saul, You and your sons will be with me tomorrow, in verse 19, does it mean that Saul was saved? Because he would go to the same place Samuel did? He didn't say you're going to hell. That's a great question. So in the Old Testament, uh, there was not really an understanding of uh, an eternal heaven and an eternal hell that people went to after death. They had a word called Sheol, which was basically the word for the underworld. And so what Samuel was telling Saul is not, you know, you're saved or you're condemned. He was saying, you're coming to the underworld. You're coming to the world that, that is populated by those who have died before the final judgment comes. Now, again, the Old Testament guys, they didn't quite know exactly what that was going to look like in the future. This was Sheol, the underworld, as opposed to the final destination of souls in what we typically refer to as either heaven or hell. Any other questions? People, I read my fool head off this week, so I would be ready. You got nothing? Well, maybe I got them all. Okay. Oh, I forgot. Remember I told you I was going to quote that passage? And then I said, no, it's going to have more punch later. Well, I, I missed it. Rats. But... I'm going to tell it to you now. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Remember I said that in 1 Samuel 15, that is when God told Samuel that he was taking the, the kingdom away from him. And listen to what Samuel says to Saul. He doesn't just say, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. He goes on to say, or he says, first of all, he says, Your rebellion is like the sin of divination. Because you see, this divination, what he was doing, what Saul was doing when he went to Samuel, or sorry, when he went to the witch to find Samuel, bring him back from the dead, 
That was open rebellion against God's rule. He was trying to do an end run around God's rule and, and get what he wanted out of Samuel. And that is rebelling against the will of God. And it was foretold to him already way back when, he was taken, when, when his kingship was taken away from him. That this is what your rebellion is. Like divination. And then near the end of his life, what does Saul do? He goes to a, a, a witch, a diviner. Like, Wow, what are you doing, guy? Okay, here they come. How does the judgment of Saul fit with the gospel of Jesus? God left Saul, but Jesus promises not to leave us. Can you elaborate? So, there's a tension in the Bible, okay, between the promises of God that I will never leave you or forsake you and the fact that we are called to put our trust in Jesus, that if we uh, forsake him, that we are lost. And there's a lot of theological, uh, what I'll call, uh, scaffolding around this building, but let me put it very, very simply. Saul was given ample opportunity to repent of his sin and put his trust in Jesus Christ, and he continually hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, until it was like a stone. And he had rejected God finally and completely, and therefore he was lost. And hence, my appeal to you, you're not in Saul's situation. You're not at that place, because you're hearing it again. Even in the story, Saul heard it again. I tried to say that about the witch preaching God's word to, to uh, Saul. when He didn't even see it. What did he do? He twisted it around. He's like, oh, no, 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 you'll be fine. I swear on the Lord that you'll be fine. Like, that just shows how far this guy has gone. You know, oh, this always happens, right, when you ask me a question. Think about this. You know stories of so-called Christian people who you discover they have this horrible secret life? And you go, well, they were never really in Christ at all because you can't do that and live out of that and actually be in Christ. Saul is a bit of a picture of that as well. Leader of God's people had done a couple good things here and there. He wasn't like he was a complete disaster from the very beginning. But you discover at the end that his life was, like that his heart was completely turned inward on himself. All that mattered to him was his rule. And he was willing to do anything he could to hold on to it. So when mediums talk to spirits in this day and age, they're actually talking to real spirits and they're not making it up. I think that's definitely possible. Yeah. Yeah. Simply put, I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't go so far as you can talk to your dead relatives, um, whether Christian or not. I do think that there are demons uh, that you can talk to and often... Uh, not often, the Bible doesn't say it often, but the Bible says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so if he can behave that way, why couldn't a demon do that? Uh, how does someone overcome the constant doubts and hesitancies that plague their mind about their faith? And what the Bible says. Wanting to trust what God tells me in the Bible, but constantly questioning 
and an existential crisis that never feels satisfied no matter how much I learn about the Bible. Um, well, hmm. please, I, I, and I mean this in all seriousness, come talk to me about that. If, if, you, if you could, I'd love to talk more. I can't answer that here and now in such a short period of time. But I, I really would love to try to talk, you, talk through that with you one-on-one -on -one over coffee or something else if you're online or if you're in this space and that's you. Um, yeah, I can't answer it now. Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That's what every Christian says at some point in their life. Anything else? Great questions, by the way. 